0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. My name is Brian. I pastor that location, and it's good to talk to you again. There are two attributes of God that are sometimes a little bit difficult to understand. On the one hand, God is a God who judges evil. He's a God of justice. He's a God who brings judgment upon those who break his law. On the other side, he is also a God of great mercy compassion and grace. So how is it that he can be both at the exact same time? Today we encounter a story that shows not only the justice of God, but also the mercy of God. And we talk about the reality. Yes, we serve a God who does not tolerate evil, but we also serve a God who is ready and willing to forgive and offer mercy So I hope you enjoy this and I hope you listen closely because I believe that God has something he would like to say to you. Now, some of you may know I have a daughter who is six years old and I know I'm biased, but I'm going to tell you that there are many, many reasons why uh, my daughter is one of the greatest people on the face of the earth. And uh, I hope uh, if you met her, I think you'd agree with me. And one of the reasons uh, why she's so lovable, one of the reasons that she's so great is she is one of the most empathetic and caring people I have ever met. Uh, She walks into her classroom at school and just seems like she's one of those kids that knows what's going on with everybody and truly cares what's going on with everybody, And that's normally a great thing. Here's where it's been a challenge. Ever since she was two years old, whenever she sees a story, whether that's a book or when we saw the Finding Nemo play at Disney World or when she watches a movie, she gets so emotionally wrapped up into the story that I almost worry that at some points it becomes unhealthy for her. And a couple weeks ago, we were watching the movie Toy Story. Remember the original Toy Story from the 90s? And we put on that movie, and I thought to myself, oh, here's a great movie the kids will like. It was a Friday night or something. We all happened to be home. And so we started watching the movie together. And Halfway through the movie, if you don't know, Toy Story is is an animated movie, and what happens is there's a group of toys that are owned by one boy named Andy, and when Andy leaves the room, all the toys come to life, and they have adventures, and they talk, and the two main toys are are Woody, right? And who's the other one, the space guy? See, someone knows, Buzz Lightyear, right? And so uh, Buzz Lightyear and Woody, they get separated from Andy in the movie, and they're trying to find their way home. My daughter couldn't handle it tears, sobbing, sobbing and weeping. And then, of course, by the end of the movie, because it's Pixar and it would not end any other way, uh, they find their way home. And then there was sobbing, tears of joy, uh, because she just couldn't handle the fact that Woody and Buzz Lightyear had found their way home. And I felt terrible by the end of the night because I had put her through such an emotional roller coaster. And we sat down and I said to her, I said, Caitlin, I said, Do you know when we watch these movies like Toy Story or Finding Nemo or or whatever the last one is that she's broken down over? I said, Do you realize these aren't real? And she said back to me, They're not. And I said, No, honey. I said, This is just a story that somebody wrote, and then these are cartoons. It's not real. And she thought about it for a moment and she said, So then, are you real? is mom real? And and it's got, I mean, it got big, quick, big philosophical questions. And I said, I said, yeah. I said, mom is real. I'm real. You're real. Jackson's real. But these stories that we see, like, they're not real. They didn't really happen. And she looked at me, and I could tell she was thinking, and she said, well, is America's Got Talent real? (laughs) I said, well kind of I said kind maybe it is I don't I don't really know how to answer that question she said well is american ninja warrior real and i was like where are you watching american ninja warrior what is this what's going on but i think one thing that happens when we're a child right is that we are willing to accept stories at true as true with very little evidence we just take them as true if someone tells us a story that ha- and they say it happened we believe them And something happens as we grow up, we become a little bit more cynical, we have a little bit more intelligence, we think things through a little bit more, and I want to suggest to you this morning that I think sometimes actually the opposite can start to happen in our lives as adults, that we become so cynical that we can actually talk ourselves out and take things that actually happened and turn them into fiction. You see, there certain stories in the Bible that we look at as kids' stories. They're the stories for the kids, the stories that uh, get sewed into quilts and hung up on our children's walls, stories like Noah in the ark. And, and and stories of Jesus uh, with the little children. And those stories, we put them in, in picture books, and we put them in cartoon form, and we hang them up on the walls, and VeggieTales makes an episode about them. And and for the kids, it's good. It's a good story for the kids. But us adults, we're a little bit more skeptical. We might not admit it, an open church, an open church, if we're church people, we're like, amen, that sounds great to us. But in our heads, in our minds, we wonder if it actually could have possibly happened. And this morning, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been walking through the book of Joshua. And this morning, I want to suggest to you that we come today to one of those stories that normally gets relegated to the kids' rooms. This is the story we tell in the basement uh, while the kids are in their kids' classes. But this morning, we're going to talk about it here. And one of the things we're going to wrestle with are the different elements in the story that are, are frankly, sometimes difficult for us to grasp and understand once we get a little bit older and start to question and start to wonder sometimes. We're talking this morning about Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, and if you grew up anywhere close to church world, you probably sang the song when you were a little kid about the walls coming tumbling down, and it was a story that was embraced. And my guess is even if you're someone that doesn't attend church every single week or it's been a long time, this might be one of those stories that you've heard before, that the Israelites marched around a city and then they shouted and the walls came falling down. And something inside of us, if you're an adult who uses your brain, says, well, that's a nice story for the kids, but I don't know. And I wish I could get up here this morning and preach the sermon that's been preached many times where I could get up here very excited and I could say to you, I don't know what the Jericho is in your life, but I'm telling you right now, if you just march around it, God's going to bring it down. But this morning, I want to deal with the things that even myself, I find quite surprising in the story. And talk about that just briefly with you for a moment. There is no way that we're going to be able to cover all of this in such a short amount of time. But I think it's wise for us to touch on it. At the end of the day, I want you to know that I absolutely believe that this story is true. But part of the reason that I believe that it's true, in fact, a big part Is because I've tried to think through and, and pray through the parts that are a struggle. So we're going to talk through that a little bit this morning. If you're not familiar with the story of Joshua and the Israelites in Jericho, I'll give you a brief summary. The Israelites, a few decades earlier, in fact about 40 years earlier, were slaves in Egypt. We're sitting in about 1400 BC. By the way, when I went home last week, I realized that I... I think I said 400 B.C. when I was on this stage last week. That's incorrect. We're in 1400 B.C. And so the 1400 B.C., 1500 B.C., the people were slaves in Egypt. These are God's people, the Israelites, the Jewish people. And God brought them out of slavery with Moses. They spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. They come to what is known as the promised land, an area, a region that's been promised to the Israelites for generations. And now God is finally going to give them this land. And Jericho is the first battle they come to in this new conquest to gain the land that God promised their ancestors generations ago. And so God comes to Joshua, their leader, and he says, get everybody ready, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, for six days in this next week, I want you as a people to walk around the city of Jericho. And and that might sound a, a little odd to us, but it also might sound like, how are you possibly going to get hundreds of thousands of people? In fact, most estimates put it at a million or over a million people now of this nomadic group coming through the desert to Jericho. How do you get a million people to walk around a city? Let me tell you something that was helpful to me is to realize that we're not talking about walking the 12895 loop here. That the city of Jericho, the ancient city of Jericho, was probably, so I I read a number of different estimates, but the largest one I read was probably about six acres large. So we'll just take the largest one. That's six football fields next to each other. So think about the track at the local high school and multiply that by six. That's, for me, the largest estimate that I read in in preparing for this message. So that's easily doable if you're going to walk around the city. And so the people were to walk around the city, and they had the Ark of the Covenant, which is the simplest definition of the Ark of the Covenant, is that it's God's presence among the people. It symbolized God's presence among the people. You had the Ark of the Covenant going ahead of them. You had priests that were blowing trumpets, but the people were to remain completely silent days one through six, and they walked around the city one time. Now on day seven, the instruction was they were to walk around the city seven times. And at the end of that, when they had walked around the city seven times, the priests were to blow the trumpets, the people were to shout, and God told Joshua, the walls would come tumbling down. Right? I know the song? And so uh, they take these instructions, and the people, they go and do exactly what God said. And now God also said this, though. He said, when the walls fall, I want you to go into the city. I want you to destroy the city. Every man, woman, and child... And then burn the city. We usually don't really get into that downstairs with the kids, that piece. But that's a part of the story of this kid's story. And so the people go and they do exactly what God says. And it happens. They walk around the city one time for the first six days. The seventh time they walk around seven times. They go into the city. They destroy the city. Just like God said. Now, there's a number of things to me that are surprising, but there's three things that I want to talk about this morning that I think are really surprising about this story and I think matter should matter to you and to me, and we'll get to that in a moment. Like I said, we're going to move quicker and faster than we probably should on each of these, but it is what it is. Here's the first thing that I'm surprised about. First thing I'm surprised about, I'm surprised by the miracle itself. I don't know about you, but I'm surprised by the miracle itself and how it plays out. I'm kind of surprised, I don't know if you are, I'm kind of surprised that God gives these sorts of instructions and the people just do it. I, I, would, I might raise my hand and say, Joshua, I was thinking maybe we could spend some time making weapons. Uh, and also, then we could also run some drills. Like we could run some military drills and get ready for this giant battle. But it seems like from the text that no one really questions what's happening God tells the people what to do, and then the people, they just go and they do it. But when I start to question like that, here's what I forget. Here's what I forget. I forget that these are the exact same people that watched their God bring them out of slavery in Egypt. I forget that these are the exact same people that for 40 years were sustained by God while they lived in the desert. I forget that these are the exact same people that just a few uh, weeks earlier walked through a parted Jordan River that God uh, parted for them so they could walk through on dry ground. I forget that these are the people that have watched their entire lives God do amazing things and sustain them. So if God asked them to do something now, why wouldn't they do it? God has been faithful the whole way through. And you know, sometimes you look at people in today's world that do kind of uh, odd things because they say God asked them to do them huge steps of faith that don't necessarily make sense when you try to write it down and look through it. I would suggest to you this morning that many of those folks have the same experience as the Israelites. These are people that have watched God throughout the course of their life. Be faithful to them. Heal them. Provide for them. Take care of them. Watch over them. Watch over their children. So when God asks them to do something that sounds a little odd, why would they not go ahead and do it? It can sound odd to me, but but I forget I forget what God has already done for these people, so why wouldn't they go do what he did, tells them to do? But there's the other side of the miracle I'm a little bit surprised about. I've been in concerts and stadiums that have gotten pretty loud. The structure never crumbled, luckily. Things didn't fall over because of the volume. So what's going on there? In fact, this is how Joshua 6 records it. This is Joshua 6, verse 20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout. And the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. And in verse 24, we read, just like God said to do, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. So not only did the walls fall down, but the people did what God said. They went in and and destroyed the city like God had asked them to do. I'm a little bit surprised by the miracle itself. The walls come falling down. We'll talk about the destruction piece in a minute. But what you may not know is that the ancient city of Jericho uh, really exists. It's not something that was written about in the Bible. And honestly, for me personally, this is part of the reason why I believe this book is true. It's because the places and the names of people actually lived. And so starting in the mid-1800s, 1860s, 1870s, there have been a number of archaeological digs and, and site work done in the ancient city of Jericho. In fact, it is, it is, I think this is true, I know it's marketed as the oldest city on the face of the earth that's been found. And this is exactly what it looks like, the ancient city of Jericho. You could go there today and see it with your own eyes. And by and large, uh, archaeologists believe that this ancient city of Jericho is the same city of Jericho that you read about in the text of the book of Joshua. This is the same place. Now here's what this city would have looked like. And here's where archaeology begins to prove the text True, I believe. Is the text tells us that Jericho was a heavily fortified city. And sure enough, when parts of the city wall are uncovered, this is what they discovered. They've discovered that there were two walls within the city of Jericho, that there was a lower embankment that was built up, and then there was a lower city wall that sat on top of that embankment. And then the embankment continued, and there was an upper city wall. So if you think all the way back to Joshua chapter 2, if you were with us, we read a story of a woman named Rahab, and it said that she lived in the city wall. Well, how do you live inside a city wall? Well, when there's two city walls, you can easily live inside the city wall, and there were houses and structures inside the city wall. And in fact, if you remember the story, Rahab, her profession, she was a prostitute, right? If you remember that story. Probably real estate was cheaper because you only had one city wall guarding you. And to live with inside both city walls would have cost more money and been more expensive. And so this is what the city of Jericho looked like. And from the outside of the city of Jericho, it would have been an imposing structure. It would have looked like a very difficult place to get in and do anything to touch the people who were inside. I kind of look at this city the same way as a turtle with its shell. When there was no threat, the people would open up the city gates. They could come and go as they pleased. They could do their business. But when there was a giant threat, they closed up the city gates. Everyone got into the walls of those cities and they were safe. There's really no way to get up that embankment and into the city when they have all the advantage of being able to shoot down at you or attack down at you. So the people shout and the walls come tumbling down. Here's the other thing that archaeologists have found when they cover sections of these walls. And this is true. This is the reports of the people that even think the biblical narrative is false. The bricks of the walls surrounding Jericho fell. fell. How and when we can talk about, but they clearly fell. And in fact, multiple archaeologists—at least two that I read this week—report we that there are clear signs of an earthquake happening, and the walls falling, and the walls falling in such a way that created a ramp up into the city. So the walls fell down, and the people could have very easily walked up into the city. Now here's how here's where I stand. If there was an earthquake, and there are earthquakes in this part of the world, if there was an earthquake that happened at the exact time that the priests blew trumpets and the people shouted, to me that's as every bit is a miracle as if there was no earthquake that the god who has control of this world caused an earthquake to happen at that exact moment and the walls came down it works for me so the evidence of the uncovered portion of the wall it doesn't disagree with the biblical text on the contrary it supports it And so on the one hand, I'm surprised by the miracle, but I forget these are people that have watched God do some amazing things, and so why wouldn't they do what he's asking them to do? And on the other hand, there's a lot of evidence there that supports exactly what the Bible tells us. Here's the other thing I'm surprised by. I'm not just surprised by the miracle. I don't know about you. I'm surprised by the massacre. In a modern mindset, it's tough to deal with. That God would command one group of people to go and take out another group of people. Here's what I want us to remember. God reveals himself over time. And he also works within the time period in which the people are living that he's speaking to. So the Israelites live in an ancient time period where one tribe attacking another tribe, one group attacking another group was not unusual and in fact God as he's revealing himself to his people and revealing himself to the world has to speak the language of the people and so you have a culture in an ancient world where people serve different gods and when one group attacked another group, the group that won their gods would be seen as dominant over the other tribes' gods does that make sense so everyone has Their own gods and deities that they worshiped. And if my tribe beat your tribe, then my God was better than yours. And so every time God sends his people into great victory, the nations around and the tribes around take notice that the God that the Israelites worship is greater and more powerful than the gods of the people who live around us. And there's a message there, not only for the Israelites that they serve a powerful God, but also for the other people that this is a great and powerful God. But here's the other piece of this. Not only is God establishing that he's a powerful God, God is also establishing that he does not tolerate evil. The Canaanites, the people of Jericho, not the nicest people in the world. And we could get into it more, but this is a culture it involved a lot of human sacrifice as a culture that their 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 um, rituals to their gods were not pretty there was a lot of immorality happening and god makes a statement not only is he a powerful god but he doesn't deal with evil he will get rid of evil he'll take care of evil God reveals himself differently in our world today. It's a different world, and there's a number of reasons why. One main reason is we as a church are not a political entity with our God as our God. The Hebrew people were a nation with their God, and God was establishing them as a nation. And God said, go, go and show the people who I am. Today, he would never say, go and show the people who I am by killing. He would say, go and die to yourself to show the people who I am. Who I am. So I'm surprised by the miracle. I'm surprised by the massacre, but I forget the time and place and what it is that God is establishing. And here's the third thing that I get surprised by, not just the miracle and not just the massacre, but here's the thing that we can miss if we're not careful. I get surprised by the amazing mercy in the midst of this story. There's a piece of the story we haven't told yet. And that in the midst of all this destruction and everything that's happening, there is a woman named Rahab who a couple chapters ago in the book of Joshua helped take care of the Israelites. In fact, Joshua sent a couple spies to go and and scout out the city of Jericho. Rahab hid those spies. And she had a tough life, Rahab did. She was a prostitute, the text tells us. She probably wasn't the most moral person in the world. But here's what she did that the other people of Jericho did not do. When those spies came in and she hid them, they said, they said to her, or she said to the spies, I know that your God is the God. We've seen what he did for you, and I know that your God is the God. And because she expressed faith like that, and because she was obedient, she was spared. So the walls fall down, the Israelites rush in and one of the things that Joshua says to the people is go and find Rahab and her family, take them out of the city and protect them and take care of them because she showed great faith in God. I look at this story and I'm surprised by the miracle, I'm surprised by the massacre, but I, what I don't want us to miss is that we begin to be surprised by the great mercy of God. Because here's what God starts doing, even way back then in the 1400s, is God starts revealing that he is unlike any other God. And in the midst of the barbaric ancient world, God begins to show his people that he is a God of great grace and mercy. So yeah, he eradicates evil, but if there's one person who is willing to turn and to trust in him and and put faith in him, that he will save that. Person. He begins to say to the, to, his, to the Israelites in the Old Testament, things like take care of your neighbor, watch over the orphan and the widow, don't t- harvest your entire fields, leave the corners of the crops for poor people to come and to eat. And he begins to teach them over time, I am a God who, yes, judges evil, but I am also a God who is gracious and merciful and compassionate to those who would put their trust in me. And you know what happened in 1907 and 1909 in the German excavation of the city of Jericho? They found a section of the northern wall that did not fall. And here's what's interesting to me. I've always wondered this. If Rahab lived inside the city wall and the walls came tumbling down, how did she survive? Well, there is a section of the wall that didn't fall. It's uncovered and you could go see it. And the houses attached to the wall are there to. And it just happens to be the portion of the city wall that is closest to the Judean wilderness where the spies went and hid when they left Rahab's house. And in the middle of this story, God is incredibly merciful to those who would follow him. So what in the world does this have to do with us? Well, the way I see it, you're sitting here this morning and you're one of two places this morning. You're either this morning someone who has put your trust in God and you are someone who is outside the walls of Jericho looking in. And I don't know what Jericho looks like for you this morning. I don't know what it is you're facing. I don't know what the challenge is that lies ahead of you. But if you're someone that has already put your trust and your faith in God and you're on his side, then you are a person that is outside the city of Jericho looking in. What I want to remind you of this morning is that God is powerful enough To get you inside those city walls, that the God you serve is powerful enough and greater than anything that you are facing or any obstacle that is in your way. But some of us here this morning, we're not on the outside of Jericho looking in. Some of us, we are inside the city of Jericho looking out. We're not yet someone who follows God. We're not yet someone who has put our trust in him. We're not yet someone who has, as Rahab did, put her faith in the God of the Israelites. I want you to know this morning that God offers you great mercy and compassion. This morning is Palm Sunday. And it's a story time that we remember Jesus riding into the city of Jerusalem. And what's about to happen is another great moment in the story of God, where we see both a miracle, a massacre, and mercy. Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem And the miracle is that he comes and he dies on the cross and three days later he is raised again proving that he has power and authority over death itself. And the massacre this time isn't the people who are guilty because the reality is that you and I are just like the people who were in the city of Jericho. That God has established a law and you and I can't keep it. That God has established what perfection looks like and you and I can't live up to it. And we can play the game and we can act like everything's good and we can act like we have it all together and we can put on a front for everybody. We can put the billboards out of our social media and we can put the billboards out to everyone of what our life looks like. But we know what goes on inside of our hearts and our minds, and we would never let anyone else inside of there because it's not pretty. the reality is, no matter what we put on outside, whatever front we put on, there is this interior piece that you know about and God knows about that falls short of what he has commanded and called us to. And that means that we face the exact same judgment that the people in Canaan faced. We face the exact same judgment that the people in Jericho faced. That means that death is coming. And the massacre that takes place in Jerusalem is the one innocent man, that is Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life. And he goes to the cross for you and me and takes our spot in that place so that you don't have to. And in that moment, God shows us great mercy so that if we would put our faith and our trust in him, we would be spared his judgment. Jesus offers us the chance to restore a broken relationship with God. Jesus offers a chance to have our sins covered over by His sacrifice. Jesus offers us the chance to live in relationship with God, not only here and now, but also for eternity. And some of us are on the outside of Jericho looking in. We've already believed that. We've already bought into that. And we are looking at these obstacles in our life. And you need to be reminded today that God is powerful enough to get you through. But some of us this morning are on the inside of Jericho looking out. And like Rahab, you need to be saved. God offers you that opportunity through Jesus Christ. To put your trust in him. To follow him. And to be saved. So I don't know where you are this morning. If you're on the outside of Jericho looking in or you're on the inside of Jericho looking out, but either way, I want you to know that there is a God who is powerful and mighty and merciful who wants a relationship with you. I'm going to invite our worship team back to the stage as we close this morning. And if you would just bow your head and close your eyes with me today, I want you to think about something for a moment. I don't know where you are this morning if you're someone that's put your trust in God or if you're someone that's standing on the inside looking out. I don't know if you're someone that already follows Jesus Christ with your life or someone who does not. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that you need to deal with. If it actually happened, then it demands your response, demands your life. If you look at it and you make the determination that it didn't happen and it's not true, then you can make that choice as well. But we ought to be careful here and we ought to give it a good look. Because if it did happen, then it is God offering us His mercy and His grace and his compassion and the opportunity for a relationship with him. If it did happen, it means that there is hope for the future that exists outside of this world. I don't know about you, but we keep looking for hope within this world, and it is so elusive. The laws we pass are important. The the things that we stand for are important. But I gotta tell you, we've been passing laws and and we've been doing movements for generation after generation after generation and this world is still a broken place. And we keep looking for hope and we keep looking for some sort of final answer and solution within this world and we need to face the reality at some point that it just doesn't exist. Jesus Christ is the solution that exists outside of this world. God sent his son into this world to do what we couldn't do, live a perfect life, die on the cross for our sin, be raised again, that we might have life eternal. And some of us may not even understand what that means fully, but something is saying in your heart right now that this is true, and it demands your response. So if that's you this morning, I'd invite you just in your own heart and your own mind. to tell God that you are sorry for who you are and what you've done and that your desire is to follow him and to serve him with your life. And if you'll do that, I believe that God will move you from a place of judgment to a place of mercy and grace. God, this morning we thank you that you are a powerful God, that you are a mighty God. But Lord, we also thank you that you are a merciful God. God, for those this morning who are beginning their walk with you, Lord, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, will lead them and guide them and fill them. Lord, thank you for the grace and mercy and compassion you show us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening to the podcast from Mount Hope's Belmont location. At Mount Hope, we gather in Belmont every Sunday at 10 a.m. and 5 p.m., and in Burlington at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Each week that we gather, we do so to learn more about God, grow in our love of Him and others, and then we go to live lives driven by faith. If you live in the Burlington or Belmont, Massachusetts areas, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about us by visiting our website at mounthope.org, M-O-U-N-T-H-O-P-E dot O-R-G, or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at MT Hope Belmont. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you listen again.